straight talk, genuine insights. It's the SC Policy Council, keeping its finger on the nerve of our state legislators. Live on the Liz Callaway Show with Nick Summers, talk 94.5. Not only on the nerve, but getting on the nerves of many legislators. And that's perfect. <laughs> Keep it up. Bryce Fielder is joining us. Uh, good morning. Yeah, so sometimes I say, oh, I said, did you read the article from the SC Policy Council? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That response is always, yeah. yeah. So, Bryce, uh, welcome back to the show. Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you for having me, Liz. Happy New Year to both of you. You know, we had a good break. It was very restful, but we're excited to, excited to start the new year and get back to work. All right. Well, I want to focus on one thing regarding the governor's budget on all the documentation that you sent to me. Um, a lot of people are digging their heels in about this I-73 thing. And I thought the most earth shattering thing that uh, McMaster said was, I feel like people are just not into it anymore. They're not into I-73 anymore. And I'm like, what? When did this happen? So, uh, I, you know, listen, every campaign season, that's all we talk about. And every candidate, I-73, no, yes, no, yes. And now the governor's saying nobody's interested in it enough anymore that he didn't put any funding in it into his budget. That, Liz, that's very interesting. In fact, this is an issue where I'm going to have to lean a little bit more on, on your expertise because this is kind of a road out in, in the all area. But yeah, it is interesting to see how the conversation is kind of swayed back and forth. You've got people that are bought in, they're trying to sell it to the community. And then maybe as things slow down, people start to backpedal. And now, as you're saying, it's not even mentioned in the governor's budget. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Yeah, he was interviewed and uh, he literally said that, you know, there's not a lot of people um, paying. He said support has died down from local and county leaders. That's what he told WMBF News. So that's why he didn't bother putting it in the in the um, budget. I thought that was a shocker. (laughs) <laughs> so, well, do, do, you, do you mind if I ask, how, what about the support from kind of the, the locals in the area? Does it that seem it to depends. Matter? See, it's not about the locals, really. Um, I, like, look, Nick and I really don't have an opinion on it. I mean, it'll help us get, you know, to I-95 quicker. Um, but there are, you know, certain towns, certain mayors that want it. And other mayors say, yeah, I'll want it if you pass it through my town. Um, If you're going to bypass my town, I don't want it. So, you know, they kind of like some of them say, I defer to the governor, whatever he says. And so, yeah, Horry County says they want it because they feel it's going to bring people here quicker and it'll attract industry um, and jobs. And that might be true. Don't know. A lot of people feel that there are a lot of stakeholders that are making these decisions in powerful positions because they have land, they have businesses that lay asphalt and contracting. So we, we don't know who to trust. Uh, I mean, powerful stakeholders making decisions. Where have we heard that one before? <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's get to what you want to talk about. You wrote a um, uh, the Policy Council's 2024 Roadmap to Reform. What should we know that's in there? Yeah. So this is kind of a big picture overview of some of the top legislative priorities for the for the South Carolina Policy Council this year. Breaks it up into sections. You know, how can we reduce taxes and spending? How can we get to a system where we have judicial integrity? How can we pass policies that expand educational choice for students and families? How can we increase government transparency at at the state and local level so 
people actually know which decisions are being made and why? And then finally, how can we cut regulations that are getting in the way of people doing business and also that are preventing access to health care? And so um, it, it talks about some of the bills that we'll be supporting and kind of the reasons for why. And uh, it's something that we'll be referring to kind of as the, as the session goes on. And it's, it's something that we, that we recently sent to legislators. And uh, one thing that I should mention, Liz, and we talked a little bit about this last year, is it's going to tie directly into our 2024 legislative scorecard. Anytime a bill moves, or I should say passes, on one of these reform items that we talk about in this piece, that's going to be a candidate for a bill that we score in our 2024 legislative scorecard. So last year, we put out a scorecard. Uh, it had a rating for all 170 members of the, of the General Assembly on how they voted on bills dealing with freedom. We're going to continue that project this year after a lot of success, and it's going to relate to some of the bills that are in that report. One of the things I wanted to point out that was a bone of contention here on the Liz Calloway show was the so-called Yankee tax, the Senate Bill 208 that you um, recently put in one of your uh, – and if anybody wants to be on the SC Policy Council newsletter uh, emails, uh, I highly recommend that. It's a great way to stay on top of things. Um, I just got it. Uh, before you came on the air, and it says that um, this bill would allow counties to impose additional driver's license and motor vehicle licensing and registration fees on new residents. And then in parentheses, it says subject to a local referendum. And then um, the policy council's position says we oppose this proposal and believe the state should not enact policies that would penalize future residents and deter economic growth. I agree. And that caused, you know, because we we have a state senator here, Stephen Goldfinch, and he's the one who came up with this idea. And he's all over national news talking about it. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, and and that's I mean, it it caught fire when this proposal was first introduced and it it earned the name, the Yankee Yankee tax. I mean, look, South Carolina has so much going for it as of late. In fact, the, the Recent uh, census data says that we are, by percentage growth, the fastest growing state in the country, even Mm -hmm. beating out a place like Florida, which has seen tremendous growth. Why would we start adopting policies that are going to take us backwards, that are going to undo this progress, and that are going to penalize all the people that want to move to South Carolina and, you know, know, bring their families and, and, and call this place a community? And it's not as if people that move here don't contribute, you know, through taxes, through property taxes. Well, they think they're going to bring their blue politics here. That's what they think. And well, I think it's the opposite because I'm a New Yorker and I came here to escape blue politics. I wanted to live freely. That's why I picked here. And, and, and I don't and I, I think I agree with you, Liz, but even if you buy that argument, this particular bill isn't going to change that. It's just going to say, well, the people that do move here have to pay a little bit more, but they're going to retain those those policies that they bring with them. So I think we should encourage people to move to South Carolina. I think the success of this state speaks for itself. The economy has been doing great. We relatively are a low-tax state. I think people that live here uh, recognize that and are happy with that. And so I hope to see that attitude, you know, continue. Now, when it comes to government transparency, what were some of the things that really um, stu- stuck out to you. I-, I see you have a lot of links to live streaming um, that you can mm-hmm. live stream these um, hearings and stuff. Was that not happening before? 
It was, but it was hit or miss. So now that session is starting today, you're going to have tons of committee meetings uh, looking at bills that are moving at the state house, and also looking at the budget and kind of as lawmakers decide how to appropriate money. Um, for the most part, a lot of these meetings are live streamed, and then after they're streamed, they're posted online on the state house website. So at any point, you know, people can go back and look and see what was what happened and what was said. Um, what we found is that. Unfortunately, some of the budget hearings, particularly on the Senate side, we're not quite at that point yet, but we'll get there soon. A lot of those meetings aren't streamed. And so you don't know, you know what agencies are saying to legislators. You don't know why they're making certain decisions about what's going in the budget. You really have no record of how the budget is being developed, which from our perspective uh, is, is you know problematic. People should know how and why their tax dollars are being spent. And a really easy way to do that is just to make sure you stream all of these meetings that are happening at the state house. We're speaking with Bryce Fielder, uh, the policy analyst for the South Carolina Policy Council. Um, let's talk about legal reform. We talked about that at length um, over the past few um, times that we were together. Uh, what What are you looking for in 2024 regarding judicial selection process? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be hopefully one of the biggest issues that the legislature takes up this year. You know, as you know, the selection of, of South Carolina judges all the way up to the South Carolina State Supreme Court, uh, those selections are primarily controlled by lawyer legislators, which creates uh, lots of conflicts of interest. And we've recently heard from state solicitors about how some of those conflicts of interest play out in the courtroom, examples of favoritism and wrongdoing and, and, and all the sort. And the problem, of course, is that is really damaging public trust. And in order to have a functioning judicial system, people have to believe that it's working and that it's working for the people, not, you know, for the, the players on each side. And so there are um, different policies that we've recommended. These are, are growing in popularity. You know, number one, first and foremost, all, get all of the lawyer legislators that are currently on the JMSD, which is the board that screens and nominates judicial candidates before they are elected. Uh, take the lawyer legislators off and put either private citizens you know, or, or people hopefully selected by the governor, so you can even out the process, the executive can have a little bit of input in the process, um, put those on the commission. We think that would go a long way to improve things. Um, there, there's even, you know, this rule that says, well, if you want to testify about a candidate before the JMSD, you have to submit your written testimony two weeks in advance uh, to the JMSD, and they can still decide not to hear from you. And we think that's a, a, a huge barrier that probably prevents a lot of people from speaking at these meetings. So we'd like to see that that rule either struck or loosened a little bit. And then this just goes back to the streaming conversation we talked about. These JMSC meetings are, are never streamed. I think mm. they're making an effort to do so this year, okay. although it's not happening in real time. I think they're going to post them uh, after the fact. Um, so, you know, stream them just like the other legislative meetings are streamed. Have you gotten any response from anybody like who's the decision maker in changing these rules? Have they commented on the requests? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of legislators that agree that things need to change and, and support reform. And in fact, there's a special House committee right now um, that is hearing from kind of different members of our judicial system and thinking about what can be done to, to improve things. And lots of lots of legislators on that committee certainly seem open to the idea of reform. Some are less enthusiastic, but, you know, that's to be expected. Um, I guess the truth will be, or the moment of truth will be, once they produce a bill, we can actually see what's in it and see if it meets 
kind of a uh, true reform or if it's kind of a Band-Aid on, on a bigger problem. So that's something we'll be keeping an eye out for over the next month, month and a half, most likely. Okay. All right. Now, um, there was one other thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about, you know, regarding the budget uh, that the governor released. Uh, now, will you be um, breaking down the budget and going through that or have you already that I can look at? Uh, I did print out the budget, but I'm just wondering if you have a, a response to any of it. So we're going to be closely following the budget as it, as it's developed. Um, last week, the governor issued his proposed executive budget, which in recent years, legislators will kind of use as a template and pull some ideas from that they put in the official legislative budget. And so it kind of serves as a, as a preview of what you might get in the final product. But, you know, the governor's budget is not binding. It's in reality, it's just a series of, of recommendations. Um, we've, we've looked at it. We haven't fully studied it, so and we hope to do that in the future. But two things in particular stand out to me, and I think they might stand out to anyone that reads it. If you start from the top and kind of read his introduction, the very first recommendation he makes is for $15 million to this new uh, consortium called SC Nexus. It's very nebulous. It's, it's hard for me to even describe what it does because the budget really doesn't describe what it does. But the governor wants $15 million so it can become eligible for federal funding from the Biden administration, which I find kind of strange. It, you know, I think what you include first suggests what your priorities are. And the fact that this is the first, you know, uh, recommended appropriation is just a little strange to me. And then, you know, $50 million so we can expand and open these kind of EV training institutes at the different technical colleges to meet the demand for uh, EV workers now that these, these plants are going to be starting to open and expand in the next couple of years. So all that to say, South Carolina seems to be doubling down on mm. this kind of EV plan. I, I think it's a big mistake. I, I think this is a, a VC summer plant ready to explode here. Uh, you know, I feel like all and this You don't investing... want to be beholden to the federal government either. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true, too. I I, I I feel kind of funny about saying, you know, hey, we don't want your EV business, but I mean, to double down like this, I think it's a lot of chips in one pot. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we used over a billion dollars last legislative session to recruit one company to South Carolina, Scout Motors. And, you know, it's going to be a, a long time before we know if that investment actually pays off. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, as always, that money can used instantly. Yeah. So, well, hopefully these um, these what are they building factories? I mean, what oh, is this good for our land? I mean, is this another textile industry? You know, going to poison our land? I, I mean, wondering. I, I mean, these are open questions, right? And I think there's already been, um, you know, some some serious conversations about uh, where the scout plant is going to be located and the impact that that might have. Mm -hmm. on the land there. And, and look, that's true anytime you open a major factory, particularly one that sees electric vehicle components and batteries and how are those disposed of and mm -hmm. what is the impact on yeah. the, the land and the water and all that. So, you know, these are questions that we'll have to really pay attention to closely. Not to mention that every car dealership owner or person that I've talked to say, this, this state is not made for EV cars. We're too rural. You know, very rural. I mean, yes. And you, if you 
look at a map of where the EV charging stations are, I would want I would not want to take a back road road trip through South Carolina in my Tesla. No, I don't have it. But if I did, I wouldn't be taking it through there because what would you do when you run out of charge? There's nowhere to be. Here's a fun fact. I went to uh, I landed in Orlando and rented a vehicle to go drive to my son's house in Sarasota. And they gave me the keys to a Tesla. I said, what am I going to do with that? They're like, it's a Tesla. I'm like, I don't care. Give me one that takes gas. I don't know where, I don't even know how to charge this thing. I don't, I'm going to Siesta Key. There's probably no chargers there. I don't even know where I'm going. I mean, I was freaking out, literally freaking out. I said, I don't want this Tesla. So, so she said, well, then you're going to have to pay $60 extra per day to get a gas powered vehicle. And I said, are you kidding me? You never mentioned this on your website. It didn't say gas-powered vehicle, electric vehicle. Well, we automatically default to electric. So be sure when you rent a vehicle, you're asking for the gas-powered price, if that's what you want. They're charging more. That's very interesting. I mean, look, it might make sense in a state like Florida or other states that are just a little more developed. But it's like you said, South Carolina is very rural. I mean, good luck finding a a gas station. Exactly. (laughs) But let alone the charging That's true. That's exactly right. Well, Bryce Fielder, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. You can go to scpolicycouncil.org and sign up for those newsletters or NERVE. The, is it The NERVE? I always get that wrong. I'm sorry. Yes. Yep. You can sign up for The NERVE at thenerve.org. Okay. Very cool. Thanks, Bryce. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Liz.